0: Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message.
1: Hey, it is really wonderful to have you with us, and I just want to say hello to our online audience right now, as well as those who are joining us in Streamwood, and in DeKalb, and in Aurora, as well as those of you who are here in St. Charles. Again, a warm welcome for our guests. So good to have you. Now, Kay, I recognize not everybody here is familiar with your story, and so just to give uh, folks who are watching a little bit of background, uh, I want to touch on a few of your claims to fame, so to speak, one of which is uh, you and your husband, Rick, started this church, Saddleback Community Church in Southern California. It's just a ginormous church now. God's been so faithful. What's Saddleback Church like?
0: Oh, my. Well... It's very much like Christ Community Church. Uh, we started, as, as the trailer said, in 1980 in our living room. And our intention was, you know, we wanted to capture the attention of people who didn't go to church. Yes. There were plenty of churches, you know, scattered throughout the community, but there weren't many churches for people who were turned off by church, who kind of didn't really know what it stood for. So we were, that was our intention, our goal, is to make make Jesus accessible to them. And uh, we're multi-site. We have multiple campuses, much like Christ Community. And it's, it's, it's my favorite place. I mean, you're a great church, but I'm trying to Saddleback is the best place on earth. I, what can uh, I say, it's just true.
1: <coughs> we would beg to differ, but that's all right. I
0: would expect yeah. that, yes, yes, yes,
1: Yeah, anybody could do church in Southern California, <laughs> yeah. With the palm trees and, It's the oh, Midwest, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, good. So uh, you did this church together. You guys are both authors. In, in fact, uh, Sue, my wife and I, we were, uh, this week we are up in northern Wisconsin hiking and biking and uh, reading, and she was reading one of your books. So you're an accomplished author. Rick wrote this, this book, Purpose Driven Life. How many copies of that have sold?
0: I, I, think, I think it's, I don't know, it's, it's just it's embarrassing to say. It's like almost 50 million in all of its different Iterations. It's, I mean it's, it's, it's one it's, of the most
1: popular books. It of all time. is. And so
0: yeah. to say that he's an author and I'm an author is like saying, you know, I I I grow a dandelion in my garden and he grows, you know, butchart <laughs> gardens in British Columbia. I don't know. It's like this <laughs> and this, but
1: Oh, come on. So when a guy writes a book, The Purpose Driven Life, yes. you just the, the title suggests someone who's buttoned down focused driven. So what what is Rick like?
0: Um, well, he, he's just a goofball. He is a he's he's a country boy. He's he was he was raised in the country. He he is very he's got a brain like I've just never met anybody with got a brain quite like his. He's he's brilliant, but he also doesn't know what day of the week it is, how old he is, and you know sometimes I go, how can somebody so smart be so dumb? But. <laughs> <laughs> um, very lovingly, I say that. Uh, no, he—he he is. He's amazing. He's funny. He's charming. He's—he's um, he's warm. He's the guy who walks out on the patio after church every weekend, walking around going, "Have you hugged your pastor today?" You know, he's just—it's like hugging Santa Claus. And, huggers. Yeah, yes. he's a hugger. Go yes, huggers. go huggers, yeah. Right.
1: yeah. So, in a sense, I mean, you know, just looking at you externally, you—you you seem to have lived a little bit of a charmed life. Yeah, again, Southern California, where it never rains, and we've been doing nothing but rain, rain. lately, and and this huge church and some fame, so to speak, and um, vocational success, but there've been there've been some hardships uh, along the the way as well, and I I want to acquaint. Our listeners, with some of those, uh, starting as a young girl, five years old, something very traumatic happened to your life.
0: Yeah, my dad was a pastor um, in Southern California, and um, one of my earliest memories actually is being molested at church um, by the son of our church janitor. So I was molested by somebody that I knew and trusted, um, but I didn't have language for it. I really didn't know what had happened to me. I didn't. I didn't go home and tell my parents. Um, we grew, I grew up in a, you know, pretty repressed household. Um, I jokingly say that my mother stretched the word sex into 14 syllables because she <laughs> it was like She say it. She just couldn't get the word out. So somehow as a little kid, I, I just kind of knew that it wasn't really a good thing maybe to talk about kind of forgot about it the way that many times that happens when children um, experience sexual traumas, they don't know what to do with it, didn't have language for it, but it really affected me throughout my life um, with some some really painful times in in my junior high and high school and even into early part of our marriage and um, I think I'm just learning more and more even though the abuse happened almost 60 years ago there can be lifelong effects sure from can. trauma yeah. and abuse.
1: Absolutely, you you mentioned your, your you know how it impacted your marriage that's another hardship that that was surprising for me to read about as I, I read a little background to your story. That you and and Rick uh, experienced difficulty at the at the beginning. I mean, it, the marriage almost ended up a train wreck.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, it. Yeah, so we were at college, uh, same Christian college together, and I was dating a guy that I was sure was Mr. Wonderful. And um, evidently he didn't share the same belief because he broke up with me. And, and um, Rick was kind of waiting in the wings. I didn't know it. And, uh, but he had had this kind of vision from God that he was supposed to marry me. So I didn't know this, but he, he asked me out. And I went mostly because I you know, had nothing else to do because I wasn't going out with his other guy. <laughs> and, um, and eight days later, he asked me to marry him which is children do not follow this example um so while that in itself is unbelievable what's even more unbelievable is that I said yes and um so we got engaged we were 19 we didn't we were young and stupid didn't really know you know much of anything but that just seemed like what God wanted us to do so we got married and You know, the honeymoon was uh, a failure of epic proportions, let's just say that. And just nothing worked. Everything that they say that, you know, couples tend to fight about, sex, money, children, in-laws, and communication. We fought about all of them. And then we fought about our fights. And he was (laughs) a youth pastor, and we just felt so alone. We, We didn't know who to talk to. We were... Um, it just felt like we were, we were in ministry. We weren't supposed to have those kind of sure. problems. Yeah. We didn't understand how the abuse that I had experienced um, as a child had contributed yeah. to any yeah. of that. We just didn't get it at all. And um, finally, after about a year and a half, we are, uh, the pain that we were experiencing was greater than our pride of having to ask for help. Yes. And, and so we started some marriage counseling, uh, some marriage therapy, which continued actually for quite some time. We, we have learned over these 44 years of marriage. Um, we, we, he is my best friend. He's I'm his best friend. We are the best thing that ever happened to each other, but it has not come easily. Yes. It, it's not been a walk in the park. Sure, it's been sure. a difficult journey, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of starting over, yeah. a lot of um, grace for each other, yeah. for each other's yeah. brokenness. It, it's yeah. been a long journey. Wow.
1: Well, uh, side note to those of you who struggle within your marriage. Uh, I, I love Kay's line that somewhere along the line, your pain has got to be stronger than your pride. Because pride says, keep it to yourself, keep it quiet, don't let anybody else in, don't let anybody know. Uh, but you really need you need some community around you. At Christ Community Church, we've got a program called Reengage. It's it's like 10 weeks of work on your, your marriage. It is incredible. It's been hugely successful in people's lives. So whether your, your marriage is hanging by a thread or you just see some things you'd like to fix, you'd, you'd like to do better, uh, let me recommend re-engage. You, you know, don't wait for your, your pain to become so acute that it finally overwhelms your pride and you're willing to do something. You know, do something sooner than later. So we got sexual abuse as a child. We've got a, a rocky marriage. Cancer. Let's just throw that one in, too. Another hardship in your life.
0: Yeah, um, uh, I did. I was diagnosed with breast cancer uh, and, um, and then with melanoma a year and a half after that. And the, the good thing is that I'm, I'm well and I've been well for, for many years. But I recognize that if I didn't have access to good treatment... Diagnosis and treatment, either one of those would have killed me. I would be dead yes, yeah, by now. Yeah. And so I am so grateful for the ability to get good medical health care. Um, you know, it came, that cancer came at such an interesting time for me because I had just, I'd been, a, you know, super involved in our church, but been a stay at home mom for most of the years raising my kids. And our Empty Nest was coming up. And, and I was thinking to myself, Lord, it would be so cool if you allowed me to be an advocate for children who suffered. I just think that would be so cool. And I mean, I prayed this prayer that maybe God would open that door, but I didn't really know that I expected that he would answer that, but he did and he allowed me this opportunity to become an advocate for people with HIV and orphans. And I had just started down that path when I was diagnosed with cancer. And so there was the thought, um, you and I were talking about this, there was the thought of, I didn't ask God, why did this happen to me? Yeah,
1: not why me. But no,
0: I really didn't because I, I just think that life is hard and stuff happens to all of us. But, um, but I did ask, why now? Because it felt like God had opened this door to do something significant, something that I had dreamed of doing. And at that exact moment, I had to take six months you know and didn't really know at first if i would live or not i didn't know how serious it was so that was that was a that was a challenging timing of something that so had happened
1: sometimes sometimes god's timing is so bad you know <laughs>
0: <laughs> well i think but, so that's for sure
1: <laughs> but then you discover there's so what was the you know why did god put you through this do you have any yeah. sense of
0: you know the the one thing that i thought of was here i had just you know, surrendered my life to be an advocate for people living with HIV. And, and I was not HIV positive so I didn't really know what it was like before then to get a life-threatening diagnosis. Yeah. I didn't know what it was like to suffer in that way. And all of a sudden, with my own diagnoses, the, between breast cancer yes. and melanoma, I knew what it was like to face a life-threatening yeah. illness. And it gave me such empathy and compassion for people who had also received a health diagnosis that was going to change their lives. Yeah.
1: God gave you a lab course.
0: I, I, yeah. yeah, He did.
1: Yeah, it's like when you go to school and you take a, an academic course and then there's a lab a part to it where you actually put stuff into practice. Yeah. I mean, that, that's it. Yeah. So, uh, so there have been some hardships in your life, some super highs, some uh, desperate lows, but I got to believe the lowest low uh, has to be associate, associated with the loss of your son, Matthew. Um, as we, we turn the corner to talk about Matthew, I want to begin on a positive note, not, not talking about where the, you know, the, the story tragically ended, but tell us about Matthew, his, the positive side of his personality. What kind of a young man was he?
0: He was a lot like his dad, in that he was just funny and silly and quirky, and um, he loved nothing better than to say inappropriate things that would, you know, shock me, and um, greatest joy in his life was to say something that made me go, (gasps) um, you know, I don't know, I don't know what there is about kids that love to do that to you, but um, he was deeply compassionate, and I, I have found, I've heard so many stories even since Matthew's death of people almost every one of the Matthew stories that I hear are people telling me how he found them in a room. You know, maybe they they were the only one in a room who wasn't doing well. And somehow he knew that. And he would hone in on people who were struggling and maybe felt alone. And so all the stories I hear of him encouraging people, of him comforting people, of him telling people, even though he wasn't sure he could make it, um, as his mental illness grew, he, he really tried to encourage other people to, to hang in there and to, to feel like there was hope. And, uh, and I love that. I, he, he, he traveled with me on a lot of the um, global things that I did for orphans and vulnerable children. And when he died, actually, the world lost a powerful advocate for, for oh, vulnerable children. And wow. Um, wow. He, was, he, was, he was an amazing person, and wow. I sure do miss him.
1: A wonderful son. Yep. But there, there was this dark side. Depression. When, when did you guys first spot depression in Matthew's life? Um, he
0: was diagnosed with clinical depression when he was seven. Oh, my goodness. And um, he probably could have been diagnosed a little bit earlier in, than that, except we didn't know that children could experience no. mental illness. No. We had no we thought that mental illness was for adults yeah. or you know, young adults. We didn't know that children could experience mental illness. And so we just always knew he was different. Being our youngest, we'd already, you know, had We were somewhat experts at being parents because we'd already had two kids, and and he was just different from very, very toddlerhood, and we just thought he he was different, that he would outgrow some of the behavior, some of his reactions that were not like his brother and sister. and um, So when he started coming home from school when he was seven and just telling me he was sad, and I... I would try to figure it out. Did you, yeah. you know, did you yeah. get in, did you get in a fight on the playground? Are You having trouble at school? No, no. He lost interest in his video games, which he loved. He lost interest in playing. And, and after a while, we started figuring out there is something wrong and, um, found out he had clinical depression. And from there, sadly, he, panic disorder and, um, Um, ADHD. And when he was 11, he was diagnosed with early onset bipolar. And at 12, he had his first suicidal ideation. And then from there, major depressive disorder and OCD and body dysmorphic disorder. And a year and a half before he died at 27, um, he got the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And I think really what I want to say, I don't know that all of those were correct or if they were working in together. All I know is he was somebody who was suffering, Yes. Tremendously yes. tortured, torturous yes. life. Yes. And as his illness became more and more pronounced, um, really, it, it he just, uh, tortured is just the best way I could say.
1: You, you know, it's one its one thing to list off all the psychiatric, uh, you know, boxes that he checked off. But I, I think the best summary of it to give us a, a feel for what it must have been like for you was a comment he made to you on Mother's Day when he was just, what, 12 years old?
0: Yeah. Yeah, um, that was when I first realized that that he was struggling with suicidal thoughts. Um, He'd had a hard day on Mother's Day, and um, I was tucking him into bed at the end of that day, and it was dark in his room, and out of the darkness, he he just said, Mom, would you kill me and put me out of my misery? And I was glad it was dark because I was glad he couldn't see my face. My mouth dropped open, and I... I I mean, my eyes, I I mean, I just wanted to scream, like, what did you say? I mean, no no mother ever wants to hear her child being in such misery that they ask you to put them out of their misery. And I somehow just, you know, rubbed his back and, you know, touched his hair and just said, buddy, I'm so sorry you're hurting like this. We will get through this together. I mean, I didn't know what to say. And I went out of his room and my older son just happened to be kind of walking through the hallway and I just collapsed into his arms and just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. Wow. And yeah, so that was the first that we, that we understood that he was living with pain that was so great that he yeah. really wanted to just escape it permanently.
1: Well, you know, Kate, when, when we think about mental illness, it seems like um, there's often one of two responses that are extreme. One is to see it totally as a spiritual issue, you know, just ask God to take it away and right. and, and the, but at the other extreme, um, yes, the mental health folks can help us out but but to only trust in that side of things. Yeah. Tell us about the spiritual side i mean what what is the spiritual side of of dealing with this thing with, with, with Matthew? did you guys pray about it? did you you know what, what was done spiritually to address it on, oh, on that front? Oh
0: my goodness! We, I feel like looking back that that we just we basically twisted ourselves into pretzels trying to do anything that would help him, and um, from all the doctor visits, all the medication, all the therapies, all the different school approaches, because he just. Was struggling so hard and nothing really seemed to help all that much but there absolutely is a spiritual side although as you said mental illness has um, you know a biologic basis it has environmental basis um, and but we're whole beings we are body soul and spirit and and the brain is an organ in the body like any other organ and something can go wrong with your liver something can go wrong with your kidney something can go wrong with your stomach something can go wrong in your brain and when it does it's not going to work properly and so there is no shame or stigma in, in mental illness. It's, it's the same as having any other part of the body not function exactly right. But, but we also recognize that, that we're more than bodies. You know, We also are spirit, we're, we have emotions. And, and so we, we prayed, we, I mean, on our faces prayed. I, I as I said, we twisted ourselves into pretzels trying to, um, to get him the help that he needed. And we begged God, uh, to heal Matthew and had people praying for him. We prayed over him. We did everything that that we really knew yes. to do, yes. and yet this illness was was so relentless. I've I've come to believe that in in much the same way that not everybody who's diagnosed with cancer recovers sometimes and or some other life-threatening illness. Sometimes an illness is stronger than we are, and even our best efforts yes. don't keep everybody alive. And mental illness can be like that um, in the most serious condition. It's not that way for everybody, but in a few people, it becomes an illness in which it's very hard to recover.
1: And, and in Matthew's case, I mean, tragically, this led to his his death. Yes. W- was that a surprise to you? Was it um, you know, was it the first time that he had attempted no suicide? Was it um, did it, did it come out of left field, or, or did you anticipate it? Or
0: it, That's kind of a yes and no, because because he had started with suicidal thoughts and ideations when he was 12, and he began then acting um, on them later. When he, when he was eight, under 18, I could make sure he took his medication, and the medication did help. It kind of put a layer of skin over the rawness of some of his sure. feelings. It, it did help. But after he was 18, there was... Um, he would go on and off of it, and I couldn't make him stay on it. And so his mental health fluctuated when he would go off of his medication. And there came a point in which he just decided he, wasn't, he was just done with all of it. He didn't think it worked, and so he stopped taking it. And as he began then to really deteriorate, um, there was we were aware that he could take his life. And there were attempts to attempt. There were attempts. There were hospitalizations. It was a chronic um chronic theme of his life was just not that he wanted to die. In fact, I've not yet met anybody who sincerely just wanted to die. What I meet are people who just want the pain to stop and they can get to a place of distorted thinking into believing that there is no other alternative. And Matthew was, was at that place. So, I mean, we, it wasn't like completely out of the blue, but we didn't expect it to happen on April 5th 2013. I mean, we'd, he'd just come to our house for dinner the night before. Yes, he had put his head on the table and said, Mom, I am so tired. And he didn't mean physically. He, he meant he was just weary yeah, of, yeah. of the battle and the struggle. Sure. But he was had a date coming up in two days. He was he told me he was going to go to the gym next day. And he was working on his biceps and he was going to get an, his phone updated. He was going to get a new, you know, a new um, phone. So he had some future. He was he was heading to yeah, future. Yeah. So that day, I don't know exactly what, what became that moment in which he thought he could not keep going. Yeah. No. So wasn't out of the blue, but we didn't think it was going to yeah. be that day.
1: So, so back to praying about this. Uh, did God let you down?
0: I certainly felt let down. Um, It's, it's hard when you're praying with all that you have and um, on your face before God and begging him to save a person that you love and they don't live. Yeah. Yeah. That is probably one of the greatest, well, undoubtedly the greatest challenge to my faith has been... Um, Believing that God was going to, if not outright heal Matthew, that He was going to at least allow him the ability to manage his illness, and my hope was severely crushed when when Matthew died uh, um, a couple years before, when he was deteriorating, and I was aware of the of the strain and struggle of having a loved one with serious mental illness, and and the challenge that it was in my own faith. I had I had started this what i call a hope box and i had put in it all these verses that that i would hold on to that that gave me Courage to believe that Matthew was going to be healed, and I—the
1: kind they make into wall plaques. Uh, oh yeah, yeah,
0: the kind, yeah. yes, that yeah. you have plastered around your house and yeah. wall plaques. And I, I had written a book, "Choose Joy," that we'll talk about. And I, I had a, I'd had a necklace, uh, I'd found that had the word "Choose Joy" on it, because it was a reminder to me that that I that God could be trusted and that I I could hold on to God no matter what. And. The day that, that Matthew um, died, I, I kind of had a feeling that had happened because I'd been on a phone call with him and then suddenly he was um, not there and I couldn't get him to respond and I was afraid that he had actually taken his life. But um, so when I went to his house, I deliberately pulled out the necklace that said choose joy and I put it on as we went to his house. And when um, the, uh, the sheriff's confirmed to us what we were afraid of that he had passed away, um, Rick and I were standing in the, in the driveway just holding each other and I looked down and realized that I was wearing that necklace and I just kind of held it up to him as sort of a I don't even really know what I was saying as much as somehow we're going to make it yeah. we're going to make it yeah. um, I don't know how but we're going to make it and I had to rebuild hope because there was a there was a period. I didn't doubt God that God was real, I didn't doubt God's power. But I had a question about His goodness. Yeah. And um, I. Why
1: would a good God, and why
0: would a yes, good God? Yes. Yeah. A, allow this suffering in His in our son's life, yeah. and then this in ours. And after Matthew died, I um, I took those verses out of my hope box. <laughs> I just took them out. I thought I threw them away, <laughs> but I found them a couple years later, tucked away in something. And Not because those verses weren't true, but it was because they didn't, that is not what happened in Matthew's yeah, it's life. it's not the whole story. It is not yeah, the whole yeah, story. Yeah. But that hope box sat, sat empty. At the same time, somebody gave me a little, a little ceramic pot that I started calling my mystery pot because I started writing out these questions that were troubling me of why didn't God answer why wasn't, wasn't my faith enough? Why, did, why, did, why didn't God stop them? I mean, all the things that are so real, that are so true. And I wasn't gonna ignore my questions. And some people wanted me to just kind of forget, well, you know, it, it, you, you know just put, don't ask those kind of things. Those are like, those are, those are hard questions. Don't ask those questions. And I was just like, no, the, God can handle this. God can handle yes. my questions. Yeah. God can handle my my questioning his his goodness. And so I started writing out those things and putting them in this mystery yeah. pot. And then I began to rebuild my hope box with verses that that I could believe with all my heart. Yeah. Like first Corinthians fifteen, forty-three, that says, These bodies were buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They were buried in weakness, but they will be raised yes. in strength. And yeah. I can hold on to that. That's true. It's true for Matthew. Jesus lives. And if Jesus lives, Matthew is alive. And if Jesus and Matthew are alive, then someday when I die, however I die, I too will live. I can hold on to that. But there was a very strong period in which I struggled with the questions that nobody seemed to have answers for.
1: You still have that mystery pot?
0: Absolutely. I have my mystery pot and my hope box sitting right next to each other. And when I have my when I have my quiet time with with God every day, I'm I am looking at both mystery yeah. and hope and to me that is the essence of our faith yeah. because untested faith is just optimism how do you know that faith works unless you're tested the how do times. you know yeah. that yeah. god really can be trusted and here's what yes. i would say i don't understand everything about god i don't i don't have a good answer to the, to why is there evil in the world why is why are i mean i i have some answers there's some theological answers but they don't always satisfy but what satisfies me, yeah. what satisfies me is I know that one of these days when I see Jesus face to face, he and I are going to take that mystery pot and he's going to take the lid off of it and he's going to go through those things one by one with yeah. me and he's going to tell me and he's going to comfort me and it's going to be enough. Yes. I trust yeah. him. I do yeah. trust in the goodness he's a of trustworthy God. God. He yeah. is yeah. trustworthy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you got a mystery pot? (laughs) We're going to be selling mystery pots at Resource (laughs) Bookshop afterwards.
0: And the Hope Box.
1: Yes. Yeah. And the Hope Box that goes with it. So, but, uh, you know, so what do you say if it's not a child with uh, depressive thoughts? We've got a a wide range of folks listening right now. Right. And, And while we may not have a literal mystery box, we 're wondering why didn't God why didn't God why didn't and, and we know that there's an enemy of our faith right who loves to slander God, who loves to whisper in our ears well i 'll tell you the answer to your question is because God doesn 't give a rip about you that's, that's right. the answer right. so, so what do you say to the person who's struggling right now and they 've prayed and their addiction hasn't gone away their marriage hasn't you know you know it's still broke up in spite of that the you know the cancer has persisted what, what do you say to the person who doesn't feel like God has come through for them?
0: I would tell them I don't know. Yeah, I, I sincerely don't know. I think that we sometimes set up an expectation in people that if they become a Christian, if they come to Jesus, that's, that they won't ever have struggles, yes. that they won't go through hard times, that they won't lose somebody to cancer or to suicide or a car accident. Or, or old age, or that parents don't lose their kids, or that marriages don't break up. I mean, I think, or that people don't have financial struggles. I, I think somehow we've sold people a bill of goods that says if you come to Christ, life becomes perfect. And yeah. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, in this world, you will have troubles, but be of good cheer, be at peace, because I have overcome the world. And so what that says to me is there's a lot in this life I don't understand. I, I don't. And and we, it's, it's wrong to to package it in such a way that we Simplistic can just it, a little yeah. box with a bow yeah, and, yeah. and it's all good. It's no, this life requires faith. Yes. It, it requires believing that God is good against All odds believing that he's good against what your eyes tell you it's believing that that he is good that he knows what he's doing that he will never leave us that his presence gives us a power and an ability to get through things that we would never have without him and trusting because we believe his goodness because that is the bedrock of my faith Yes. Um, then I am content in a, in a sense to leave what feels mysterious and unknowable yeah. in the hands of a good yes. God, yes. knowing that he is at work in my life and it will make sense one day.
1: Okay, I, th- I think you've kind of answered the question I'm about to ask, but let me, let me ask it anyway so that you can repeat your answer. Uh, what good is having Jesus in your life if he doesn't... If he's not a shield. To he's all not a fixer. Things. If he's not a <laughs> fixer, yeah, because some, some of the folks who've come today, uh, they're hearing this stuff about Jesus, and it's, you know, you Christians, uh, it, it's a placebo, it doesn't work. So why should someone surrender their life to Christ if, if it's not going to be a protection against all these ills?
0: I, I heard a quote um, from Eric Little. He was um, one of the Olympic runners in the 1924 um, Olympics um, from, from the UK. And he was the guy that they made the movie Chariots of Fire about. And he said this, and I, I, it, it, it impacts me. It, I, it just resonates inside of me. He said, circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans. But God is not helpless among the ruins. And There are just so many times I have felt like my life was ruined. Uh, Certainly when Matthew died, uh, it felt like our lives were just flat out ruined. And to remember that God is at work and not helpless in the ruins. That... For anyone who has felt like, you know, that, that hasn't turned out the way that they thought it was, life hasn't, or relationship, or a job, or whatever, hasn't turned out the way that they thought it was going to, to know that God is not helpless in our ruins and that He is still working out His plan of love and goodness in our lives is, uh, it gives me hope. Yes. It, it gives me a reason to hang on. I i don't know how people get through, I, I, it sounds so trite, but I sincerely mean it. I have barely made it through Matthew's death with Jesus. I don't know how people can face some of the hardest moments in life without him. Oh, I am goodness. never alone. And to know that in this yeah. very yeah. lonely world yeah. is good.
1: You know, as, as a pastor who sees a lot of the tragedies yeah. in people's lives, that is the constant thing that goes through my mind is like, how would this person make it without Christ? And, and then when I run into people who don't have Christ, it's like, well, I don't know how you're going to navigate this. These are deep waters. Yeah.
0: Oh, uh, well, it just made me think, um, it, it, this is not a full explanation and I'm not offering it as a full explanation. I'm just saying I, the Bible talks about how God brings beauty from ashes. And I'm telling you, the ashes of Matthew's life have been devastating. Um, but One of my mentors, Elizabeth Elliot, says, God never leaves anything in ashes. And so even though Matthew's death has been shattering to us, I can't tell you the number of people who have told me in these last six and a half years that they've taken suicide off the table because they've listened to the impact of his death on us and our family. And some of them have said, I can't, I can't do that to my family. And I don't know how I'm gonna get through this. I don't, I'm still feeling pretty low or depressed or whatever, but I'm taking suicide off the table. So in the strangest way, yeah. Matthew's death has kept other people from dying. Yes. And
1: So it doesn't take the pain away. It does not take, it, it's, it not, helps equi- make it's sense. not an It makes a little more sense. Yeah, about, it's not yeah. this equivalency. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, this equals this. It's not that. It's just I can see dimly Yes. That there is beauty emerging wow. from some of the ashes. Wow.
1: Let's talk about what your marriage endured in this. Uh, you know, everything I've read suggests that the loss of a child, whether whether, whether a son or daughter takes their own life or whether they're uh, killed by a car accident or some disease, or that it works a hardship on a marriage. And that often couples don't stay together uh, because they, you know, you grieve at different paces. Uh, communicating your grief is difficult Uh, did your marriage take a hit in all this
0: I was worried in the years before Matthew the the short answer is no Um, actually we're closer than we've ever been but in the years preceding Matthew's death, we had a lot of conflict over, because serious mental illness just puts families in these untenable situations, and one of you feels like you need to address it this way, and the other feels you need to address it this way, and, and honestly, Rick and I had a lot of conflict uh, over Matthew's illness. Um, and it was just this constant struggle and worry and stress. So I had these moments of thinking, if Matthew were to die, would this kill the emotional intimacy in our marriage? And um, I really did kind of worry about that. And then when Matthew died, um, I, I give Rick all the credit for this, but he, he decided, he made a decision that he was going to fully enter into the grief with me. I mean, he was grieving his son, but he was grieving it. It's more his personality to grieve internally and then to share something where I'm an external processor and I, I want to talk about it all, you know, a thousand times. And so he made the decision that he was going to never judge my grief, never shame me for my grief, never wonder make me feel like I shouldn't be feeling a certain thing. And so like there would be times I he would walk in maybe from work and I would be feeling very down. Maybe I was crying and maybe he wasn't feeling it as hard in that moment. So he could have just kind of rolled his eyes and like, ah, you know, come on, honey, come on, it's it's going to be bones. okay, yeah. it's going to be okay. And instead, he would walk over to me and put his arm around me and just hold me. Yeah. And he didn't try to fix me. He didn't try to tell me I shouldn't feel sad or that I shouldn't be heartbroken. Sometimes we would weep together. And then there'd be other times I would be the one who would find him weeping or just yeah. down. And instead of me kind of try to fix him or trying to just, look, I don't have, I don't have time to feel that today. I, I can't do that. I would walk over and do the same thing. We just did a lot of holding each other, um, grieving together. What we discovered um, is that the marriages that break up tend to have had a lot of fracture lines anyway. And it is those fracture lines then that get really yeah. pulled on yeah. the in, in, the, in the tragedy. In the tragedy, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Sure. So it exposes yes. more yeah. of of what is already broken. Um,
1: you, you know, back to the difference that Jesus makes. Um, grief is such a self-absorbing thing, and if if you move towards self-absorption. That's the end of it for, for that right. marriage. You guys were a model of caring for each other, but where do you get that selflessness? It, it doesn't come from within. Right. It's got to come from Christ. Right. You've got to be so loved yeah. by, by the Lord yeah. that you have something to give to the other person. Yeah. Otherwise, you do, do turn in on yourself, and that's a disaster.
0: It, it is. Yeah. No, but you're, you're exactly right. And I think that that also speaks to the fact that we, had, we both became Christians when we were very young children. And so we've spent, you know, 55-plus years by the time Matthew had died of just really sending our roots our spiritual roots deep yeah. into God. We didn't suddenly discover that we needed God when we were, you know, in this tragedy. We'd spent our lifetime developing roots, believing God, letting Him change our character, letting us, wow. making us into people of, of yeah. love who could then be there for right. each other.
1: There sounds really important to hear in this, and that is, you know, tragedy is going to strike every one of our lives in one way, shape, or form. And so the, the key is to be prepared for it ahead of time. I mean, that's not the time to go turning to God. It's, it's like... The I time. mean, yes, you
0: do want to turn you, to God you then. Do to, yes. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let me, Pastor, let yeah. me help <laughs> you there with, with
1: that one. <laughs> Listen to what she says. <laughs> yeah. No, but it, it's... I know
0: what you were saying. Yeah,
1: it's kind of late to say, let's get a, a relationship with God going here, you know, when the house is burning down around you. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, cultivating the relationship yeah. with God. Uh, you are a big proponent of church obviously so how does church help in a situation like that because there, is, there are people who've come to hear you today but maybe not be regular church goers right. even those who are regular these days regular right. maybe you know once in a blue moon once every four or five weeks so what is the advantage what, what role did church play as you guys went through this whole thing yeah
0: well for for us again I told you um Saddleback's the best church on the planet um because the people are so incredibly loving, but they loved us well, they truly loved us well. And I think that when you're going through, as you've said, any kind of a hard time, when, I mean, we all struggle, so don't struggle alone. That, that church is supposed to be like the safest place on earth. It's supposed to be the place you can bring your whole self and your broken self and your addicted self and your grieving self and your self that's been abused and, and um, you know, everything about you. And so for us, church was that. Church was that, that cocoon of, of love and compassion and gave us a safe place to grieve. And um, I just talked to so many people now in my advocacy for, for people with mental illness who don't get that. And I feel so sad for them because yeah. it is such a catastrophic loss. And um, to not have a place where you can know and be known is, um, this is a place where you can know and be known. Absolutely. And so no matter what you're going through, um, this church in particular, I know this Group of people here, and you and your staff, um, have created a place where people can come yeah. and, and find the help that they need in their difficult times.
1: A quick word about that to you, about Christ Community, which, which is the best church in the country. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we've got... <laughs> We've got a 300 or so community groups, so this is a group where, yeah, you study the Bible together, it may be a women's group, men's group, couples group, singles group, we got groups for high school students, for middle school students, and it's in that community where you're able to share the deepest heartaches of your life and have people pray for you, care about you, and and then beyond that, we, we've got this thing called Care Night uh, at the DeKalb campus, those of you who are watching in the in DeKalb, it's on Monday night, the other campuses, it's on Tuesday night, and we address things at care night, uh, you know, like grief, there's a grief-share program, Uh, like addiction, if you're addicted to whether it's alcohol, drugs, uh, pornography, whatever, we've got uh, divorce recovery, we've got uh, stuff for people who are under a load of financial debt, I mean, you you need the community around you that it helps you get through these difficult times. So I can't say enough about Care Night. Check it out. I wish, sometimes it bugs me that so few people, per- percentage-wise, avail themselves of Care Night. Because from my perspective, like 90% of us ought to be at Care Night uh,
0: be- because of the stuff we're well, going I, through I in think, our lives. I think... Uh, busyness is probably one reason. Our lives are just so incredibly busy, it's hard to make time for something else. I mean, so I know that's a factor, but I think there's another factor, which is just that we all carry shame. And um, it's hard to say out loud, I need help. I'm struggling. It's yes. really hard to say I'm struggling. I, I think um, we just, we don't want to give that image off. We don't want people to judge us. We don't want people to say, oh, did you hear, you know, and yes. we don't want that. And so we're afraid to, to really just say out loud, hey, yeah. I, I need help. I'm in grief. I'm, I'm struggling. I have a hurt, a habit, a hang up. I, I need something. And I think the, the more comfortable people feel sharing about the parts of themselves that are less than perfect. Yes. Uh, you know, we, leave, we live Instagram lives. I'm sure you guys talk about this all the time, the effect of social media on on creating best, this best
1: curated,
0: yeah. curated yeah. image of who we are. That's garbage. We are just broken, frail, imperfect people, every one of us. And when we are free to say that, more, more and more people will come yes. to the care night.
1: Yeah. Kay, as, as as we bring things to a conclusion here, uh, your situation, going through the, what you went through with Matthew, has left you with a heart for people struggling with mental health issues. So uh, what is it you're doing in that regard these days?
0: Um, it is It is my privilege, actually, to walk alongside people living with mental illness and their families. I do a lot of speaking, you know, in churches and... Um, in in community groups talking about mental illness, the fact uh, that it's real, you know, it's not some made-up thing, it's not a character flaw, it's not a weakness, mental illness is real, it's common. One in five people who are listening to this are living with a mental illness. In the next year, we'll have some be affected by mental illness. So it's real, it's common. The good news is there's there's treatment, there's hope. And the sooner people get um, into treatment, uh, the better they will do at managing their lives. So to be able to say that and say that freely, I talk a lot about um, suicide prevention. I, I talk to a lot of survivors, of uh, people who've either lost someone or someone who is also very much on that edge. So I, I work in, my, in our own church in getting our own mental health ministry, being very robust and, and, yeah. and vibrant, making sure that we're a place where people can bring their whole selves, and then speaking to other churches and community groups um, about you, it.
1: You've written a couple of books, and, and these are available at uh, our, our resource center. Tell us about the book.
0: Sure, well, Choose Joy um, Because Happiness is, Isn't Enough was a book I wrote um, before Matthew died. And it was written when, I, as I said, I, I really felt his illness, he was declining, and I wasn't sure that I had the spiritual resources. If something, if my worst nightmare happened, I wasn't sure that I was strong enough to go through it. And so I did a huge study on joy. I lived with depression myself, and sometimes felt like i'd been standing behind the door when god handed out joy and i needed i needed it so i wrote choose joy and the principles have not only helped me then but have also been part of my own recovery and and i'm not recovered i'm never going to completely recover i'm going to miss my son till the day i die but i'm finding i can live i've survived and i'm thriving again and then um journey toward hope um, is an interactive journal that um, I was a part of. It wasn't just me, but written by people living with um, some form of mental illness uh, for people with mental illness. Right. It's an encouraging, interactive journal. Um, it's a, I think it's a, it's a beautiful piece of a way to start right. hope again in someone.
1: So, you know, pick up a copy afterwards. If you're struggling, in this area, or some member of your family is struggling. A few practical tips, just in, in closing, sure. Sure. The, what should we do?
0: Well, I would say if someone is um, maybe not sure that they're experiencing mental illness, they might finding it harder to do work, harder to do their relationships, um, they're just not um, maybe anxiety and depression is starting to interfere with that. I would say first, please go to your primary care physician and get a physical. Get get a get a workup, get a physical. And and that primary care physician may say, you know what, I'd like for you to get a psychiatric evaluation. Not because we think you're crazy, but because, you know, it sounds like you're maybe struggling there. And that they might refer you to, you know, a therapist or counselor or perhaps medication. You don't know, but you won't know unless you go check it out. So that's like for your body and stuff. And for your your spirit. We've talked about coming to church, being part of a community, a small group, a care group. Because there's nothing deeper than this desire in us to know and be known. And um, when you're going through a hard time to be with other people, we've talked about that a lot. And then the third thing that I would say um, is something we've talked about at Saddleback. It's called the Hope Circle. And it's just some spiritual... Um, to address some of the the spiritual effect that happens with mental illness where people start loathing themselves, particularly if there's a serious mental illness. There's just such shame and self-loathing. And to counter that with a message of, no, you're God's beloved. And the the message that, um, you know, maybe my pain doesn't matter. Maybe my life doesn't matter. And to counter that with a message of hope of, no, you have a purpose for your life. Or the message of, I don't fit in you know people honestly tell me their stories of just feeling like they never fit in and the message of hope in, in the gospel is you no know, god has created a forever family and you are a part of it and a necessary part of it and sometimes there's the the feeling of um i just can't go on this pain is is too deep it's too dark and um to hope says no you still have a choice you still have a choice and, and then the message that, that we get sometimes in our heads is, I've got nothing to give. He or sh- and she are so talented, or he and she are so gifted, I've got nothing to contribute. And hope, the message is, no, you're needed. You are needed in that in this world, and you're needed here in God's this place. God's got for
1: you. Absolutely. Well, you know, as, as we draw things to a close, it's obvious that, that Kay and Rick have navigated these troubled waters because of the centrality of Christ in their lives. So how do you get Jesus in your life? Uh, around Christ community, we sum it up in one word, it's surrender. You know, there's gotta come a place in your life where you consciously, deliberately surrender your life to Jesus. And, and you don't get this by osmosis, you don't get this by just showing up at church. As we say around here, uh, you know, showing up at church doesn't make you a Christ follower any more than standing in a garage makes you a car, okay? You need to make a decision for yourself What does a surrender decision look like? It's as simple as ABC, three aspects to it. Let let me paint the picture for you, and then we're going to have a a word of prayer that gives you an opportunity to surrender to Christ if you never have. Uh, ABC, okay, A stands for acknowledge. Uh, In order to come to Christ, you've got to acknowledge that you don't have Christ in your life right now. You know, we, we all, Scripture says, we go our way instead of God's way. Uh, we pull apart from the God who made us. We're the king, the queen of our own life, making, uh, making our own decisions. So you don't have to be an axe murderer to be a sinner. All you, all you need to be is a person who very deliberately runs their own life instead of allowing God to do that. And so when that happens, you pull away from the one who is the source of life. God's the source of life. And when you pull away from the one who's the source of life, the consequence is Death. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. You die spiritually on the inside. Physically, uh, at the end of this life, you're going to die. And that, that stretches into eternity as eternal death unless the problem gets fixed. So A stands for acknowledge. You just have to get honest before God and say, I'm a person who very regularly moves away from you instead of towards you, who's tried to run his own life, her own life. So you acknowledge. B means belief believe you got to put your hope and your trust in Jesus who gave his life on the cross for you Jesus died to take the death you deserve the death I deserve and and believe means you appropriate it for yourself you don't just believe in a big sense yeah I understand Christ died on the cross and he rose from the dead I've heard that in churches I've been in no it means you say God I believe this is for me I believe Jesus did this for me. He took the punishment my sins deserve so I could be restored to a relationship with you. And C stands for commit. You then make a commitment of your life. You say, okay, I'm all in. I'm giving you my life. I want you to take the throne. I want you to become not just the savior, the friend I need. I want you to be the king, the ruler of my life. I want to learn what it means to follow you. A, B, C, acknowledge, believe, believe. And commit. What I'd like to do is I'd like to lead you in a prayer if you've never prayed a surrender prayer giving an opportunity to do that right now. So would you bow your heads with me across our our four campuses and those of you who are watching online and let me just invite you to pray that prayer If if you've never prayed a surrender prayer right now. A, acknowledge acknowledge God I'm a sinner who's wandered away from you and I'm not close to you right now And Christ had to die on the cross for me. Can you acknowledge your sin before Almighty God right now? And the B stands for believe. Can you put your hope and trust in Jesus? Again, it doesn't happen by osmosis. It happens because of a deliberate conscious decision. If you've never told Christ this before, say, I believe you to be my savior, to be my hope. And the C stands for commit. Can you tell Jesus right now, I want to get off the throne of my life because I've been screwing things up. I want you to become the ruler, the master, the king of my life. Commit right now. Say, I want you to be the Lord. Now, before I I end this prayer with amen, I want to ask you to do something physical that will help you remember that internally you prayed this prayer today. So, Because tomorrow you're going to doubt whether or not you really prayed it or that you really meant it. So I'm going to ask you to do something physical that will remind you, yep, I did this. And it's real simple. If you prayed that prayer, that surrender prayer just now, I want you to stick your hand in the air for one second and put it back down. That's it. Just put your hand out. Put it back down. Good. Across the St. Charles campus, DeKalb. You know, Aurora, Streamwood, if you're listening to me right now, just put a hand in the air. I'm surrendering to Christ. If you're watching online, whether you're in your recliner or you're watching this on your laptop in a hotel someplace, just stick a hand in the air. I want to surrender to Christ. I want him to be central to my life. Put your hand back down. Uh, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you do give hope. I thank you, God, that there is a future for us that is secure, as volatile as this life can be, as vulnerable as we sometimes feel. There's coming a day. Your word talks about a new heaven and a new earth, and all who have become followers of Jesus will live forever in his presence. You will be our king. And we look forward to that day, we pray in your name. Amen. Hey, would you join me in thanking our guest for for being so open with her story today?